The Reverend Dr. Otis Moss Jr. is unto himself an institution in the city of Cleveland. Indeed, it is hard to think of the city of Cleveland over the last few decades without naming Otis Moss among its best and most notable leaders. He is not a native of Cleveland. In fact, came up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in that great crucible that produced so many inspiring and, and, and uh, important leaders in this century. Uh, he is a Morehouse man uh, and served under Martin Luther King Sr. at Ebenezer Baptist uh, before coming to Cleveland, um, where he uh, has been an important part of the fabric of this community. Uh, he also a, has been an important, a bold and courageous voice in the midst of civil rights struggle uh, walking and standing and marching alongside names that are household names to many of us outside the city of Cleveland, Jim Lawson, John Lewis, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But many of us know him best for his, uh, his leadership, his inspired leadership at Olivet Institutional Baptist for over 33 years. I want to say, Dr. Moss, what a personal privilege it is to welcome you today. You have been such, uh, have provided such a great example for all pastoral leaders, and, and particularly I'm grateful for your, your commitment uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for your bold and determined leadership in the city of Cleveland. And so it is a great honor and, and with profound gratitude that we welcome Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, Jr. as our preacher of the day. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, my rock and my salvation. In the name of our Lord, in the name of our Lord and Liberator, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, amen. To Pastor Call to the associate pastors of this esteemed and historic church, the members of the Church of Our Savior, visitors and friends, it is a signal honor and a blessed privilege to share this moment, this experience, this day, this season, the beginning of a new decade to be with you on this occasion. We say thanks be to God.
I would like to ask you to do something with me that I have made a practice of doing for the last several decades. And if you will just kindly, for a moment, fold your arms across your chest and repeat after me. In my time and in my space, by God's grace, I can make a difference. And now, Stretch out your arms to your neighbor and say, in your time and in your space, by God's grace, you can make a difference. And continue to hold your neighbor's hand and say, in our time and in our space, by God's grace, we can, we will, we must make a difference. Amen. Now, that's, that's almost all I have to say. <laughs> But, but I'm not going to sit down right now. There is a, a familiar text in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, The King James translation says, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The New Revised Standard Version says, In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Tribulation and treasure, or you might put it another way, turning tribulation into treasure. Turning tribulation into treasure, that's that's our assignment, not for one day or one year or one decade or even one century, but from age to age, from generation to generation, we must learn how and share in the teaching of others how 
to turn tribulation into treasure. Now, if Jesus could overcome the whole world, the whole world, without the internet, <laughs> without iPhone, without Facebook, without Google, without Apple, without the Urban League, Rainbow Coalition, NAACP, ACLU, SCLC, hashtag, Black Lives Matter, hashtags, my, my. Scores of other efforts, institutions, projections, and organizations. Why can't we overcome something? With all of the access we have and the awesome privilege to be in harmony with the same one who said, in the world you will have persecution, but be of good cheer. Don't lose heart. I have overcome the world. Now, let me say two or three things about overcoming the world, turning tribulation into treasure. First of all, in order to turn tribulation into treasure, you, you, we've, we've got to learn how. We must learn how to turn pain into power. And you will not come into this world, go through this world, or get out of this world without some pain. It comes with the territory, it comes with life. And if you don't believe that, let me give you a few examples. I can't give you the whole list, but just a few. I understand that Victor Hugo wrote his, or produced his best works while in exile. And in a conversation with, with a colleague or friend, he remarked, why was I not exiled sooner? He turned his pain into producing a library of excellent works that we still turn to for information, inspiration, 
productions, yea, even movies. So, uh, if Victor Hugo in exile could do his best work, why can't we do some good works with all the benefits, all of the support systems, and even all of the pushbacks we get from time to time, but, but let me come home a little closer. In 1940, in the hills of Tennessee, a child was born into a poor family prematurely. She suffered at an early age double pneumonia, she suffered polio, she suffered scarlet fever, and it was predicted that she would never walk again. But a grandmother, parents, and by the way, she was one of 22 siblings. But with the prayers of sainted parents and uh, the gift and blessing of a coach at Tennessee State, she not only walked, but she, could, she learned to run. And not only did she learn to run, but she learned to run faster than any of her competitors. And not only that, but at the Olympics, 1960, she brought back to America, I believe, three gold medals. I'm talking about, as you know now, Wilma Rudolph. Now, it was painful for her as a child to walk with limps and awkwardness in braces and to be under the spell of a prediction that she would never walk. But she turned the pain into Olympic medals, gold medals. And sometimes people predict that your mind will not walk, that your career will never walk, that your dreams will never walk. But Jesus teaches us that we can 
turn all of that in power and not only into power and not only walk but run and not only run but fly. And while you are confined for a moment to a non-walking position and condition, something ought to speak within you saying, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. That's our calling. That's our assignment. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have pain, but you can turn the pain into power. And uh, if I had more time, I would tell you about a child I visited in his early age in the hospital, not expected to live, and if he lived, was not expected to have all of the capacity of his brain. He was a sickly child, yes. But he grew, and at the age of 12, he came to me one day in my office in my study at church, Pastor Carl, and asked me for the, for the name and address of the president of Morehouse College, 12 years old. He wanted the name and address. I gave it to him, of course. And he wrote the president a letter and outlined to him his dream and his expectations to enter Morehouse upon his graduation from high school. And not only that, but he made it his business, his career, so to speak, his commitment to write to the president every year, affirming his determination. And guess what? That young man graduated with honors and heavy indebtedness, financial burden. But the commencement speaker at his graduation announced that he was underwriting or wiping out the debt of all the graduating seniors. Young Wynn, my friend, was in that class. He turned his pain into power, academic power, determination power, dream power, the power of excellence, the power of performance in doing what is good and right and just. And the scripture came alive in his mind and in his body. You will have tribulation 
but be of good cheer. You can graduate with honors. And without your knowing it, somebody will be standing there to underwrite all of your loans. Now, I'm not predicting that all of that's going to happen to you. Uh, <laughs> but I am declaring that if we follow the full meaning of this text, there are things unknown to you, unknown to me, and unknown to the forces of evil, and unknown even to our best friends and family. Blessings waiting. I grew up in the rural South, and there was a song that talked about God moves in a mysterious way. You've heard it. And there is a line in that song that we ought to go back and memorize one more time. It says something like this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head we can turn pain into power. But there's a second thing. I have a friend, Dean Lawrence Carter. He's the founding dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel at Morehouse and is the founding dean of the chapel. Dr. Carter passed to me about a year ago his latest book. It has an interesting title, an interesting title, a teaching title. The title of his book is uh, A Baptist Preacher Learns from a Buddhist. A powerful title. That's, that's the title and somewhere I think around the fourth chapter of the book he talks about turning poison into medicine. Turning poison into medicine. What a challenge. And there are two outstanding examples in that chapter. One from Dr. Carter and one from his Buddhist friend, he would say, teacher. Now, the Buddhist friend grew up in Japan during World War II. He was a child when the two atomic bombs exploded in Japan. He saw the death 
the suffering. He saw individuals buried alive. He saw generations of insects breeding without legs and wings as a result of the nuclear fallout. And he developed a bitterness in two directions. One was a bitterness toward the leaders of Japan who, who, who led the nation into this terrible conflict. And another, a bitterness toward America who dropped these horrible atomic weapons on a nation, uh, most of whom killed were innocent women, children, and men. This dual bitterness was eating away at him until he had a spiritual experience and in that spiritual experience he came into contact with something that Jesus had taught long time ago and something that Gandhi practiced for decades and something that Martin Luther King Jr. adopted for a decade and two years. Nonviolence. Creative love. And when he gave his life to that moral and spiritual force, he became a new person. Dr. Carter became bitter sitting in the chapel at Boston University when he received word that Dr. King had been assassinated. He had to wrestle with that until he could reach a moment of overcoming. And lo and behold, it wasn't in his resume. He didn't find it in a dream book. But lo and behold, he became the founding dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. He found a way to turn, yes, poison into medicine. That's our assignment. Every day, every day, we meet poison, even if you're not looking for it, it will find you and offer you a cup full, <laughs> maybe 
not a thimble, but, but, but a cup. Maybe a bottle. Maybe a bucket. Maybe a barrel. And some people will drink all of the bitterness that life brings to them. And they will make a career of passing it on. Passing it on. But some people will take that bitterness and through some spiritual chemistry turn it into medicine and spend their years healing, healing, lifting, teaching, transforming, caring, embracing, building bridges and not walls. You catch that after a while. Well, the poet, the poet said, something there is that doesn't love a wall and wants it down. Before I built a wall, I would want to know what I was walling in and what I was walling out. We must learn how to turn poison in to medicine and to that extent we become physicians of the mind and of the soul and of the spirit in the world. You shall have tribulation but be of good cheer. I forgot to ask the pastor how much time I have. <laughs> But I, I, I want to give you two quick examples. I will not go into detail. There were, there were two experiences, there were many, but there are two experiences in Dr. King's life where he taught us how to turn poison into medicine. One was in a Birmingham jail. And if you have not read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and interestingly enough, the letter was directed to six members of the clergy who had criticized him for coming to Birmingham. They said that his, his, his presence in Birmingham was untimely and unwise. What an accusation coming from fellow clergy persons. But in that jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, came the letter from a Birmingham jail. There was nothing comfortable about that jail cell. There was a moment, uh, let me change that. There were some days when he was sleeping on steel and concrete. 
but sleeping on steel and concrete and being attacked not just by politicians and police forces, but clergy persons. He wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail. It's a classic epistle of redemption, protest, and transformation. Now, everybody's heard about that letter, but there's another letter that most people have not heard of, and that's the letter he wrote to Mrs. King from a Georgia state prison when he was alone. And in that letter, the thing that constantly informs me and lifts me, there's a, there's a sentence in that letter. It's a very personal letter, very personal. He starts it out to Mrs. King with the, with the salutation, hello, darling. In solitary confinement, the Reedsville State Prison, where the electric chair was housed, they carried him from DeKalb County across the state of Georgia, 230 miles, handcuffed with chains on his body and a police dog in the wagon. But he opens the letter, hello, darling. And then he described the situation, but there's a sentence in that letter which says, I have the faith to believe that the suffering coming to our family now will somehow make Atlanta a better city, Georgia a better state, and America a better nation. Just how, I do not yet know. But I have the faith to believe that it will. He had the capacity to turn poison into medicine. And finally, we've got to learn how to turn tribulation into treasure. Did I say finally? No, Helen Keller taught us a great lesson here. There are some eternal words coming from her. She said, life took away what was supposed to be my eyes. Milton came and showed me paradise. Life took away what was supposed to be my ears. Beethoven came and wiped away my tears. Life 
took away what was supposed to be my tongue. I had a talk with God when I was young, and God would not let life take away my soul, and possessing that, I still possess the whole. Oh, we can turn tribulation into treasure. Several years ago, I could now say some decades ago, I was participating in a march against the war, the war in Vietnam. We ended the march at the state capital of Georgia. And I noticed something special at the end of that march. That was a young man sitting in a wheelchair with no legs and one arm. I inquired, who is this? I said, he is the Secretary of State, Secretary of the State of Georgia. No legs, one arm. How did he get that way? He's a veteran of Vietnam. And then later on, this gentleman wrote a book and honored me with a copy, an autographed copy of his book. And he borrowed the title from Hemingway, Life Breaks All of Us, But Some Grow Strong at the Broken Places. And Max Cleland gave the title to his book, Strong at the Broken Places. Before he entered the military, before he was shipped off to Vietnam, he was a tall, handsome, extroverted person, better than most on the dancing floor. The life and center of social gatherings. But he came home with no legs and one arm. And at one point, despair almost took over his life. But he had an experience with God. And it turned, turned his life. At one, at one point, when he was in Washington, D.C., in rehabilitation, if you can call it that, he didn't know how to use his wheelchair. And as he came to the curb, the chair turned over and he fell out of it in the mud. No legs, one arm, weakling in the mud. 
streets of Washington, D.C. But he came away from all of that, all of that tribulation and trial and became the Secretary of the State of Georgia. But he didn't stop there. He became director of the VA under President Carter, but he didn't stop there. He became a United States senator from the state of Georgia. One arm and no legs. Life breaks all of us, but some grow strong at the broken places. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, bitterness was on one side of him, crucifixion, lynching in front of him and all around him, and a soul beside him asked for mercy. And in the language of my forebears, Jesus made death behave and stand still for a moment and said to a thief, a robber, or as my son would say, a thug, who asked for mercy and said to him, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Bishop Sheen said he wondered how did the thief know that Jesus was Lord? And who told him that Jesus had a kingdom? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus didn't take him through catechism classes. didn't carry him through a long system of proving certain unprovables, but said this day, we're going to overcome temptation and we're going to turn pain into power and we're going to turn hurt into medicine and we're going to turn tribulation into treasure and come on and walk with me. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to walk with me all along my pilgrim's journey. I want Jesus to walk with me.